Please turn your Bibles this evening to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, it's right between Obadiah and Micah. From Jonah chapter 1, we, we learn that Jonah is on the run. The, the Lord called him to go one way, but Jonah determined in his heart to go another way. God commissioned him to, to go up to Nineveh, but Jonah went down to Joppa and set sail for Tarshish. But if you know the story of Jonah well, then you know what happened next, don't you? Jonah's flight was met by the Lord's fury. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea so that Jonah and the sailors nearly died. But in order that God's wrath might be appeased, the sailors cast Jonah into the sea. And that's where we pick up our reading this evening at verse 17 of chapter 1, actually. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me. All your billows and waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds, weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have in our passage this evening is an example both of the sovereignty as well as the severity of God's mercy. Because when Jonah was cast into the sea, you'd think he would have found himself at the mercy of the waves. But instead he finds himself at the mercy of the Lord. Yes, he was safe from drowning, but rather than immediately transporting Jonah to the shore, what did the Lord do? And in his divine sovereignty, God appointed a great fish to, to swallow him up. 
And, and had the story ended there, with Jonah being swallowed up, we'd be left saying with, with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, Note then the severity of God toward those who have fallen. But the story of Jonah doesn't end with his being swallowed up, does it? For as severe as Jonah's being swallowed up may have at first glance appeared to be, we discover it was, it was necessary to, to bring Jonah to his senses. To quote one pastor, the Lord was willing to, to dismantle Jonah's life, as it were, in order that he might put it back together again better. The great fish was the Lord's means, not only to save his servant from drowning, but, but to save his servant from his own disobedience. The Lord caused a great fish to swallow him up, so that his being plunged into deep distress might bring Jonah to his senses. This, we discover, was the Lord's sovereign purpose in in appointing the great fish. It was not to destroy Jonah, but it was to restore Jonah. It was to to recommission Jonah to to fulfill his prophetic task in the world, to to go to Nineveh, to, to proclaim to Nineveh the message of grace and repentance. And this congregation is what God often does in our own lives as well, isn't it? Just as he sovereignly appointed a great fish to, to swallow Jonah up, so too the Lord also brings trials and, and ordeals into our lives to, to bring us to our senses, to, to make us see our need of him, to, to teach us to count our days, to teach us to, to repent of our sins. As one pastor has said, when we reject and disobey God, it often takes radical treatment if our rejection and disobedience is to be remedied. And that's what we see here in Jonah chapter 2. Radical treatment. Severe mercy. As the Lord causes Jonah to come to his senses. Thus far in the story of Jonah, the, the Spirit has been accenting Jonah's disobedience with, with the language of, of going down. You'll read that three times in chapter 1, that when the Lord called Jonah to go, to go up to Nineveh, Jonah went down to Joppa. And when he went down to Joppa, he went down to the ship that set sail for Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then when we read about in chapter 1 about God throwing this great storm upon the sea as all the sailors were, were casting cargo into the sea, the Spirit says, but Jonah was, was down in the heart of the ship. Jonah has been going down. That's the language the Spirit's been using to illustrate Jonah's disobedience, his going away from the presence of the Lord. And with each segment of Jonah's going down in chapter 1, the Spirit is really summoning us to, to place ourselves in that story and to ask ourselves, where, where am I going down, as it were? Where am I going one way when God is said to go the other way? The Spirit has been showing Jonah going down. And now in chapter 1, verse 17 of chapter 1, we, we see where Jonah's going down has gotten him, don't we? It's taken him even further down, further down than 
he ever would have imagined, so far down in fact, that unless the Lord is gracious to intervene, Jonah is doomed to die. He is doomed to die in the belly of the fish, down in the depths of the ocean, far from hell, and far from home. But what does Jonah do in chapter 2, verse 1? Jonah does the only thing he can do. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And this we see congregation is how the runaway prophet of chapter 1 becomes the rescued prophet of chapter 2. As Jonah finds himself under the Lord's discipline, as, as Jonah finds himself under the Lord's chastening hand, Jonah does the only thing he can do. He, he looks outside of himself for help and for hope. And so Jonah really teaches us what we're to do. When we find ourselves living under the, under the Lord's heavy hand, we find ourselves living under God's discipline, under his, under his chastisement, what are we to do? We're to look outside of ourselves for hope and for help from another. And that's what Jonah does here. Jonah prays to the God who hears. And, it, and in the midst of his distress and despair... He, he sets his sights upon the temple. We read that in verse 4. He says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In verse 7 he says, My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah orients himself to the temple. He looks to the place of God's dwelling. He looks to the place of reconciliation. He looks to the place of salvation. Jonah cries out to the God of the temple in order that he might be delivered from his distress. As we work through Jonah's prayer in verses 2 through 9, I'd like for us to consider three things together tonight. In the first place, let's consider Jonah's distress. Jonah's distress as he describes it in verses 2 through 4. In the second place, we need to consider Jonah's deliverance, which we see in verses 5 to 7. And then in the last place, we'll consider Jonah's devotion. Jonah's devotion in verses 8 and 9. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I cried out to the Lord because of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Isn't that amazing, boys and girls? Here's Jonah, the, the runaway prophet, in the belly of the fish, deep in the depths of the ocean. But in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his disobedience, Jonah calls out to the Lord, and what happens? The Lord hears him. The Lord hears him. Did you know, boys and girls, that the same is true? For you as well, that God hears your voice. Whenever you call out to God in prayer, He, he hears you. It, it doesn't matter how, how far you've run away from Him. It doesn't matter how, how deep into sin and rebellion you've gotten yourself. When God's people 
call out to him in the midst of their distress. God does not turn his face away. God doesn't turn his back towards them. He doesn't doesn't place his hands over his ears and say, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm sick of you. I've had enough of you. That's not what God does. But as we sang from Psalm 116, he hears our voice. He he hears our pleas for mercy. And he inclines his ear to us. And Jonah knows that this God was his God too. Jonah knew that his God really was the God who hears. Jonah must have learned as a little boy that that when God's people were, were groaning because of their slavery in Egypt, that, that their cries for rescue went up to God. As the Spirit tells us at the end of Exodus chapter 2, when God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And the Spirit says, and God knew. God understood what Israel was going through. He was not aloof from their situation. But God understood. He knew what they were going through. And just as the people of Israel found themselves at a loss in Egypt, unable to to save themselves from from the hand of Pharaoh, so too Jonah here. He, He finds himself... At a loss. There, there is nothing he can do in and of himself to, to change his situation. But Jonah knows that what Jonah is unable to do, the Lord is able to do. And so in the midst of his distress, Jonah calls out to the Lord. To quote one pastor, Jonah cried out when all hope was lost. He cried out to God when his life seemed to be over. And yet such is often the way of the Lord with his children. That despairing moment when we, when we throw our hands up in the air and say, my life is over. Well, that's often the moment when, when God can really get to work, right? That's what we're going to see in the second part of this passage. But before we get to that, notice what what Jonah confesses in verse 3. Because Jonah's confession in verse 3 is key, not only to his own rescue, but, but to our rescue as well. What does Jonah say? He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Now, what's, what's Jonah ultimately doing here? What's Jonah saying? Jonah is here acknowledging the fact that his distress has, has come from the hand of the Lord. On the, on the human level, of course, it was the sailors who threw him into the sea. And, and it was the great fish who, who swallowed him up and brought him down to the depths of the sea. But in verse 3, Jonah confesses that God was the one behind it all. God was behind the storm in chapter 1. And God is behind the sequel to the storm here in chapter 2. 
God is sovereign. And by noting this in his prayer, Jonah is acknowledging that far from being incompatible with God's love, these divine actions, severe as they may be, are actually expressions of God's love. This is why I said at the outset that this story is an example of, of the severity of God's mercy. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord, what does the Lord do for those whom he loves? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. When we experience the chastisement of the Lord. It's not because God is treating us as his enemies. But when we experience the Lord's discipline, we experience the Lord's hand weighing heavily upon us, as David did in Psalm 32. Thy, thy hand was heavy on me. Why was God doing that? How is God regarding David? He wasn't treating David as his enemy, but as his friend, as, as his son. That's what Hebrews 12 says. God in his discipline is treating you as sons. Yes, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, says the author of Hebrews. But what happens later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And this is what Jonah recognizes is, is happening here. Jonah, in chapter 1, Jonah is, is bent on, on escaping the presence of God. That's his goal. I want to flee the presence of God. And now he's come to experience a slight taste of the fulfillment of that wish. Where does it get you? It gets you in the belly of a fish. In the depths of the ocean. That's where fleeing the presence of God gets you. But the Lord has used the belly of the fish in the depths of the sea to bring Jonah to his senses. as God did for that prodigal son in Jesus' parable. There he is eating pig pellets and he finally realizes, what, what am I doing? I am eating pig pellets where, where my father offers feast and food to spare? And he was brought to his senses. He, he came to himself. And that's what Jonah is, is recognizing here. At the start of verse 4, Jonah says, Then I said, I am cast away from your sight. Now, now we of course recognize that it, was, that it was Jonah who had gone away from God, not, not the other way around. But isn't Jonah expressing something of the sentiment that we confess in the fifth head of doctrine of the canons of Dor? In Article 5 of the Fifth Head of Doctrine, we confess that our serious sins, what do they do? They, they greatly offend God, they deserve the sentence of death, they, they grieve the spirit, and they severely wound the conscience. And sometimes, for a time, our confession says they may even cause us to lose the sense of God's favor or the awareness of His grace. Which is another way of saying that when we've tried to, to run away from God, we can begin to feel as though God has run away from us. We can begin to feel as though God has driven us from His sight. 
we can begin to feel as though God is, is nowhere to be found. In that sense of despair, that the distress of that is often what the Lord uses to make us see. We have no other recourse but to turn to him and repentance and so experience again the, the joy of his fatherly countenance. And that's what we see illustrated here in our text this evening. Jonah's being swallowed up as severe as it may have been was the means of his rescue. Jonah's distress was, was his avenue to deliverance. For his distress is what finally brought him to his knees. His distress is what finally made him turn to the Lord in prayer. In chapter 1, as the sailors were, were hoeing their cargo into the sea and they were crying out to his God, the captain came to Jonah while he was sitting and said, What are you doing? Cry out to your God that we might be saved. And in chapter 1, Jonah didn't do that. He didn't cry out to his God. But now that he's been swallowed by a great fish and brought down into the depths of the sea, Jonah's been brought to the end of himself. And he's called out to the Lord in prayer. Perhaps we have friends or family members who have gone away from God. And perhaps we need to pray that God would show them severe mercy. That perhaps what that wayward person needs is to be made miserable. To be made to see that he or she can't do it on his own. Sometimes that's what it takes, the severity of God's mercy. Jonah's distress is what finally made him turn to the Lord in prayer. As I alluded a few moments ago, notice in the second place that Jonah doesn't just turn to the Lord with his voice, but also with his eyes. Jonah sets his eyes upon the temple. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Just as the psalmist do throughout the Psalter, Jonah sets his sights upon the temple because the temple, boys and girls, was the place of reconciliation. As the sacrifices were, were slain upon the altar, God's people were assured that, that their sins had been atoned for, that, that they had been reconciled to God. And so if you wanted to experience the joy of, of fellowship restored, the temple was the place to go. And so that's where Jonah sets his sights from the belly of the fish. And in so doing, Jonah's acknowledging with the psalmist, although his sins are many, God's mercies are more. Isn't that what the psalmist says in Psalm 130? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark our sins, then who, O Lord, could stand? But grace and mercy dwell at your right hand. And so as Jonah sets his eyes upon the temple, as it were, we learn that when we find ourselves 
in similar kinds of chastisement and discipline. The first response the Holy Spirit seeks to cultivate and work in our hearts is to acknowledge the fact that we need forgiveness. That, that we need our sins to be atoned for. And that's what Jonah was looking for when he says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He was looking for that reconciliation, for that atonement for sin. And the question that the Spirit would press upon us this evening, beloved, is that if a sinful and disobedient prophet such as Jonah had such boldness to, to approach the very God whom he had sinned against. And then to echo the sentiments of Hebrews 4 and 10, how much more boldness shouldn't we have to do the same? How much more confidence shouldn't, shouldn't you have to, to boldly approach that throne of grace in light of the, the greater sacrifice that's been made? This is what the author of Hebrews drives home in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near the true heart of full assurance of faith. In the midst of your distress, writes one pastor, the last thing you want to do, is look inward. The last thing you want to do is look inward at yourself in despair. But what you need to do instead is, is to look up. To look far, far away to the dwelling place of the Lord. You may think that God has cast you off. You may feel as though God has abandoned you. But that's far from the truth. No matter how far you've gone from him, Jonah 2 shows us that he's still within earshot. He can still hear you. And he's still exceedingly willing to listen to your pleas for mercy. Even when you've been on the run. Even when you've been on the run. Isn't that we find in places like Isaiah 55 and Jeremiah 29? As we heard in our call to worship, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? In order that the Lord may have compassion on him. Let him turn to our God for he will abundantly pardon For as the prophet Jeremiah has said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, said God, you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me, says God. And you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. As the psalmist says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind in all his works. The Lord 
is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The runaway prophet looked to the Lord and the Spirit says that you can do the same. You can do it right now. That if, like Jonah, you've been living on the run, so to speak, running away from God. God said to do one thing, but you're doing another thing. God said to go this, but you're going that way. If you've been doing that, and you are in the midst of distress and misery because of it, in the quiet of your heart, you can call out to the Lord right now. You can say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, draw near to me. Lord, help me. And the Bible says he'll hear you. He'll hear you. You see, the gospel in our text congregation and the source of our deliverance is that someone greater than Jonah has, has endured the suffering that we sinners deserved in order that we might indeed draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Isn't this we confess in Lord's Day 15 of the Catechism there that the question is asked of us, what do you understand by, by the word suffered? And what's the answer that the believer gives? By that word, Christ suffered. I understand that during his whole life on the earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Not because he had sinned, but because we had sinned. This said Jesus in Matthew 12 was was the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, when Jesus spoke those words, he was acknowledging that that the paradigm of Jonah was was going to be his own. From, From the cradle all the way to the cross, Jesus suffered for the sins of the human race and and his burial was the camps and his burial was was the testament to the fact that he really did it that that he really died for you and for me as we confess in lord's day 16 his descent into hell serves to assure us during times of personal crisis and temptation during those times of of great distress when we feel God's hand heavy upon us. Christ ascent into hell assures us that Christ, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. And so we see in the second place this evening, the prophet's deliverance. Not only did the Lord hear Jonah's prayer, but he also answered it. Listen to what 
Jonah says in verses 5 and following, The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up from the pit. O Lord my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And this too is part of the sign of the prophet Jonah. For in those words also we see a a foreshadowing of of the Lord Jesus. The, The waters of God's judgment engulfed his life. The abyss closed in on him. And God truly forsook him. As Isaiah 53 says, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was cut off from communion with God. He was cut off from the land of the living. But on the third day, the Lord brought him up from the pit. The stone was rolled away. And he was risen from the dead. And Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish was a sign of this very thing. Perhaps some of us read the story of Jonah and and we wonder, why did the Lord even bother with him? Why didn't the Lord just find another servant to get the job done? Why didn't the Lord just find another prophet to go to Nineveh and just let Jonah drown in the sea as he deserved? But the reason is because God wanted Jonah himself to be a sign Jonah's very life, you see, is going to be an embodiment of the message that he is going to proclaim to wicked Nineveh. The message that the Lord is gracious to pardon rebels. That the Lord is gracious to give to rebels a new life. In Jonah's very person, in in Jonah's own personal story, God was intended to show the wicked, to show undeserving Nineveh that he really is the God of Psalm four, of, of Isaiah 43. He's the, he's the God who says to a rebellious people, he's the God who says to rebellious you and to rebellious me, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, that would otherwise drown you. I will be with you. And the rivers shall not overwhelm you. When, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The Lord heard Jonah's prayer. And in the midst of his great distress, the Lord provided and even greater deliverance. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. This is the believer's confession. Yet you, O Lord, have brought up my life from the pit. That's what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus as we sang about in our union with him, we understand that 
When Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised with him. And what does this deliverance lead to? You see in the third place that Jonah's deliverance leads to devotion. In verses 8 and 9, Jonah says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. To quote one pastor, Jonah's transformation is such that he now wants others, especially those who pay regard to worthless idols, to know just how misguided they are. The words that Jonah uses here for worthless idols in the Hebrew combines the words hebel, meaning, meaning breath, that which evaporates and fades away, and, and the word shava, meaning emptiness. Because however attractive the idols of this world may at first glance appear to be, this is their reality. They are, they are empty. The pleasures they afford are fleeting. They're, they're fading. They, they evaporate quickly. They are, they are empty shells devoid of, of any life or lasting happiness. In stark contrast, however, in the second part of verse 8, we learn that, that the Lord is the God in whom mercy can be found. And, and the Hebrew word used there for mercy is, is the word hesed. Maybe you've learned that the word hesed is that word that that has to do with God's covenant love, his loyal love. It's a word that, that denotes something that's firm and strong, eternal. And what Jonah is saying in verse 8 is that when you devote yourselves to idols, when, when you give yourselves over to the false pleasures and false gods of the world, when you do that, what you're doing is you're, you're trading in a firm thing for a fleeting thing. As Isaiah 55 puts it, you're, you're spending your money on that which is not bread and, and your labor on that which does not satisfy. When you, when you trade the steadfast of God for the worthless, the empty, evaporating things of the world, as Jeremiah 2 puts it, you're, you're forsaking the Lord, the fountain of living water, and what you're doing is you're digging for yourself a broken system that can't hold any water at all. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have owed. Salvation is of the Lord. Having finally come to his senses, and having come to experience great deliverance, Jonah devotes himself to the Lord, just as the, the sailors do at the end of chapter 1, devoting themselves to offer sacrifices to the, to the Lord and to keep their vows to the Lord, so too Jonah now does the same. Palmer Robertson says that in these last words of Jonah's prayer, Jonah's really reflecting on the nature of true faith. Because only true faith can can deliver us from God's chastening hand. And and so Robertson notes that there are four lessons about faith that 
that we all must learn. The first lesson is this. True faith clings to the Lord even when he's chastening you. True faith clings to God even when he's chastening you. True faith, you can say, is is like a child on a merry-go-round. The faster the merry-go-round spins, the, the tighter the child holds on. And that's what true faith does. In the midst of our distress, we feel like our lives are, are spinning out of control. The believer holds on. He clings to God even when God is chastening him. And he cries to God for rescue. The second lesson we learn about faith is that true faith offers a perpetual sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. In the belly of the fish, Jonah, of course, could hardly offer anything else but his thanksgiving. But his sacrifice was acceptable because our thankfulness is what God is ultimately after, isn't it? We see all throughout the Old Testament God rebuking his people because they're bringing him sacrifices, bringing him calves and, and goats and lambs, but they're not doing so with a heart of gratitude. And so God says, don't you know I'm the God of a thousand cattle on a thousand hills? <clears throat> True faith offers to God perpetual thanksgiving. The third lesson we learn about faith is that true faith manifests itself in keeping its word. Once Jonah is released from the fish, he, he heads for Nineveh. Jonah made a vow to the Lord, and, and faith leads him to keep his vow. And the fourth lesson we learn about faith is that true faith recognizes that, as we read at the end of verse 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. True faith recognizes that salvation is all of God from beginning to end. True faith recognizes that no one else can can descend into the abyss for you except for the Lord Jesus. As, As Peter says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so we read in verse 10 that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry ground. Boys and girls, that's all God had to do. All God had to do was speak, and the fish listened. That creature that for four day, that for three days and three nights had been a dungeon for Jonah, now becomes Jonah's free transport to the beach. And isn't that what the cross of Christ has become for you and me? Isn't that what the grave has even become for you and me? That the cross, that instrument of of torture and and judgment, that death that was deemed by God to be especially accursed by God, has become our transport from death to life. The cross of Christ has become our transport from the abyss to the very near presence of God. The cross of Christ has become our transport from the kingdom of darkness to to the kingdom of light. And that's what we confess also in the catechism. Why do believers still have to die? And we confess that death is simply the is not the punishment of our sin, it's simply the entrance to life everlasting. 
Even the grave has become our transport to everlasting life. He who testifies to all these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And so we do well to pray, even so come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Perhaps some of us in the midst of great distress. And we praise you that you're the God who hears. That you've revealed yourself to us as the God who inclines his ear to us. To show mercy to us. Father, we pray that in the midst of our distress, we would indeed call out to you. And in the midst of our rebellion, you would bring us to our senses to see that rebellion only leads to misery and ruin. And in that realization, may we experience the joy of your forgiving grace. We thank you, Lord, for the deliverance that Jesus has won for us, that the cross of Christ has become our transport from death to life. And we pray that in light of his deliverance, we would offer unto you our wholehearted devotion. That we would cling to you. That we would offer perpetual thanksgiving to you. We pray, Lord, that we would keep our vows we've made to you. And that we would live in light of the confession, salvation belongs to the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.